Hey guys, welcome to the Filming with Josh podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Milligan, and this is episode number 55, Let's Talk About Lights. This is the Filming with Josh podcast, brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Thanks guys for joining in to another episode of the Filming with Josh podcast. Today we have a lot to talk about in regards to lighting, but before we get started on that topic, I want to chat briefly about a product that was announced yesterday evening. Um, Today is February 22nd, 2022, and last night the Panasonic GH6 was finally released, and I... I knew it was coming. Everybody knew it was coming because Panasonic had already done a development announcement last year, well over a year ago, and we've just kind of been waiting for them to finally release the product, and it's taken them a while. Uh, But to be fair, I'm sure part of the timing or the length of time um, is probably contributed greatly to the chip shortages that um, all virtually all camera manufacturers are um, running into today. So that's that's been a really big thing for camera manufacturers and really anybody that's manufacturing anything anywhere in the world. <laughs> so you got to cut Panasonic a little bit of a break for it taking so long. But the GH6 looks like a, a pretty well-stocked camera. It can do a lot of things. It can record 5.7K. It can do 4K. Uh, 120 at 10 bit 420. It can do 4K 60 at 10 bit 422. Um, it can do um, a lot in terms of it has a lot of video features like LUT monitoring for log, and they've included uh, VLOG in the camera. They've given it some of the best, if not the best, IBIS systems that we've ever seen. IBIS and, and the GH6 looks pretty dang good. And I don't know, there's just a lot of really interesting things that they threw into the camera. And if you've been a Panasonic shooter in the past, you kind of expected that because Panasonic's always given their GH line a lot of video tools and same actually with their full frame line, usually more than most camera manufacturers. When you look at like Sony and Canon, for instance, um, they have, you know, great cameras that mirrorless cameras that shoot video like the A7S III, the A1 from the Sony side, or you got the R5 on the Canon side, the R5C. But a lot of times what Sony and Canon, for instance, do not put in their cameras that Panasonic does are additional features that you would find typically on a more of a professional video camera, things like waveforms. And having features like that in a mirrorless camera help it to be separated from competitors because it gets it just gets more attention to the video side you know Sony and Canon which I'm a Sony shooter as most of you know they have great cameras that are feature rich but they just don't tend to put in their mirrorless line a lot of those video tools you typically don't see those until you step into their cinema line of cameras so um, that's one thing that panasonic's always done really well and the gh6 is no different it's feature rich full of uh, all kinds of different um, functions and and different settings and menu options and monitor things like waveform monitors stuff like that that help it help it have more of a professional feature set 
in their mirrorless line. The downside, of course, is the fact that it is a micro four-thirds camera, and also the fact that the autofocus still has not really been addressed. The auto autofocus in the GH6 is subpar, to be honest. And I've watched some videos on it, and you can see not only is it a little slower than the competition, but on top of that, it, it pulses where it's, you can kind of see it slightly constantly adjusting for autofocus. And that's because it's contrast-based autofocus, not phase detection-based autofocus like other camera manufacturers. So the GH6, while it is a feature-rich camera, it just doesn't have good enough autofocus. So if you're looking for an autofocus-capable camera, I would steer clear yet again. And I say yet again because Panasonic's never had a camera ever that has good autofocus, and a lot of people were hoping they would finally fix that with a GH6, but they unfortunately did not. Um, and, you know, there's the argument that autofocus um, doesn't belong in a professional camera, but I think in 2022, that's rubbish. <laughs> uh, I think if you feel that autofocus does not have a place in cinema, then Honestly, you're a fool because autofocus is a very helpful tool in a lot of situations. Um, whether you are doing a multi-cam interview shoot by yourself or whether you're running a gimbal and you don't want to rig it up with uh, a remote follow focus system and have you know someone there to, to pull focus for you. I could go on and on, but there's a, a million different scenarios where autofocus can be a helpful tool at virtually any level. So for Panasonic to not have addressed that yet again is very unfortunate. Now, if you are not used to having autofocus and you don't feel like you ever need it for anything, then it's a pretty solid option um, so long as you're okay with working with micro four thirds. Um, I... I am not a Micro Four Thirds guy anymore. I used to own a GH4 back when it was all the rage. I remember the GH4 was like the first mirrorless camera that had 4K video. The A7S Gen 1 technically had 4K video, but only through an Atomos or similar external recorder. The GH4 had it internal, and I bought one to go alongside with my A7S, and I also bought a, a Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera, the original, um, which was a... HD only micro four thirds camera, but it shot raw and uh, also had a really nice log profile. And I remember I took the um, Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera as well as the GH4 to Mexico to film a sheep hunt. Um, we also hunted mule deer while we were there, and, and I put together this uh, short film project. And man, it got a lot of views. People loved the project, and honestly, I felt like those two cameras were perfect for that project. Um, even though I shoot full frame today, if I were to go back to Mexico to film a hunt like that, like a sheep hunt, I would 100% bring a Micro Four Thirds camera. I don't even own a Micro Four Thirds camera. I would rent one. And the reason is, is the crop factor. Having um, a smaller sensor isn't the greatest thing when you're looking for low light or dynamic range, but when you want reach, man, you have reach. I, I remember I took a Canon 100 to 400 
um, L2 and adapted it to my GH4 that I had. And so it took that 100-400 when you add the two times crop factor of a micro four thirds sensor, it's basically like having a 200 to 800 millimeter lens. That's a long, long reach. And you have to have a pretty solid tripod to stabilize that kind of footage. Um, plus, I think even at that reach, I really kind of leaned into the lenses image stabilization to help me out there. Um, but having 800 millimeters of full frame equivalent reach was amazing in sheep country and allowed me to get shots I wouldn't have been able to get with a full frame camera. And, you know, I, I exported the project in HD but shot it in 4K, so I was able to crop in even further to get um, some pretty interesting shots of sheep that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Plus, the uh, smaller lenses I brought with me um, for getting general B-roll sh shots, like a, a 24 to 70 equivalent, a 16 to 35 equivalent, um, those in micro four thirds are tiny little lenses. <laughs> and so I not only had a lot of reach, but my whole pack was really small and lightweight because those lenses are much smaller than their full frame counterparts. So I remember taking that, you know, that system with me, the GH4, the Blackmagic pocket cinema camera, a few lenses and, and just packing up through the mountains and in, in Mexico, um, off the Sea of Cortez filming this sheep hunt. And man, if I could go back and do it all over again, I would use something similar today. I, I think that while micro four thirds can't do what my full frame cameras can do uh, in terms of dynamic range, low light performance, depth of field, even um, with certain lenses. I feel like even even though that's all the you know that's the case, I feel like Micro Four Thirds still definitely has a place, especially in the documentary world or if you're filming any type of wildlife. Um, so I think the GH6 will be a success despite having some autofocus issues. I think that uh, it will be a success because there will be a lot of doc shooters out there who want to pack light, who will buy this camera and enjoy all the professional features that are in it. So if you are a Micro Four Thirds shooter, and you've been looking for a new camera, I definitely think this should be on your radar. Um, it's a little pricey for a Micro Four Thirds camera, but overall, I think it is gonna be a camera that'll last you a long time. You'll be shooting with this thing for five, six, seven years, and we'll be really happy with what you get out of it. So that was a interesting release. I remember being in uh, Canada the last time I was filming in Canada, I haven't been back in several years, and I remember the GH5 was just about to get released right before I left. It seems like a million years ago, and now we have the GH6. I And, and even remember filming with the GH4, I remember when it came out. So it's uh, it's been an interesting ride watching Panasonic develop their GH line. Um, so I'm really glad. I'm, I'm pumped for them that they got this new camera out, and I think, I think for some people it's going to be uh, a great camera to have. All right, let's talk about lights. If you follow the Filming with Josh Facebook group, you probably have seen some pictures lately of me with some new lighting gear. If you are not in the group, I want to encourage you to go to Facebook, type in 
filming with Josh and ask to join the group today. But for those of you who are already in the group, you might have seen those photographs. Um, that is what has prompted this topic today because I got a few people who messaged me in asking me some questions about those lights, differences of one light versus another, etc. So I thought that today would be a great day to just talk about lighting in general, um, why we need lights, what you can use them for, what the different lights are, etc. We'll start off with the question, why do we need lights? I remember when I was doing outdoor television, I was on one of my first shoots with the show I was working full-time for at the time, and we were going out of um, state for a project, and they told me that they were going to be bringing uh, some lights uh, to have for some interviews we planned on doing um, on, on the shoot. So I was like, sure, that sounds great. Um, I'm excited to, you know, meet you guys there and, and, uh, knock this project out. We get to the shoot, they bring out their lighting kit and I was floored. <laughs> it was literally like two lights that were from Home Depot. And I remember asking the host of the show, I said, why did you bring these lights? I thought you said you had uh, a lighting kit you were going to bring. And he responded, yeah, this is my lighting kit. And I was like, these are Home Depot lights. <laughs> and they're construction lights, you know? And he's like, yeah, well, why would we need anything else? We just need light. The only reason I brought them is so we could have light in case the room is kind of dark. And that really stuck with me because I think a lot of people view lighting that way. How many times have you been online or have had a conversation in person with a photographer or a videographer who have said the words, I'm a natural light shooter? I see that all over the place. And usually when someone says that they're a natural light shooter, that usually means that they don't know how to use lights. Because even in natural light, you can use light, or at the very least use modifiers to manipulate the natural light. Lighting is an integral part of the image capture process. I'm not saying you have to have lights in every shot and a lot of work today that's not feasible, but I am saying that when you can use lighting, use it. It is a huge tool that can help you completely change the look of a project. If you know what to do with lights, then it doesn't really matter what camera you shoot on because you can get an amazing image on virtually any modern camera today if your lighting is on point. And I'm not talking about just having light. I'm talking about painting with light. Here's the way that I look at light. And at the end of this podcast, this is how I want you to view light. When I have a camera positioned for a shot, I like to think of the frame of my camera as my canvas. How I paint my canvas is with the light. Lighting is your paintbrush to paint on the canvas of your frame. That's how you need to think of lighting. You can have the most boring white-walled room in the world, and you might be tasked with shooting an interview in that room, and you might be thinking, how can I make this look better? Maybe you're running around, you're looking for props, I want to put a plant in there, I want to throw you know, some, some interesting background objects and foreground elements to make it look better, but the truth is, the best way, and I'm not saying you, you shouldn't do those things, you should, but the best way to take the most boring room in the world and make it look good is with lighting. You can paint an entire room with light. Let me give you an example of how you would paint a white wall room. 
Let's say that you were filming an interview in a white wall room and you already had your camera in position and you kind of knew where your person was going to sit and how you were going to frame them. How can you take that room at that point and make it look interesting? Well, one of the first things you could do is you could pull out your key light. Your key light would be your primary light for your interview subject. So let's just say you pulled out a big light and you had a big modifier. And so for those of you who don't know what a modifier is, a modifier is anything that manipulates your light source. If you take uh, a, a softbox or a light dome or a Fresnel or even a spotlight and you put it in front of and mount it to a light, that is a modifier because you are modifying the light. So let's just say you take a light dome modifier. It's essentially a softbox that's in a circle and you mount that to your key light and you position that off to the side at your subject. And let's say you put a diffusion cloth in, up front to soften the light and then you put an egg crate grid in front of that so that you can control the spill of the light. The spill is um, your light going beyond where you want it to go. So to control the spill, which would allow you to basically focus the lighting, you could put an egg crate grid, which most softboxes and light domes come with in front of your light dome or softbox, and it will allow you to make sure that the light that you're using as your key light will only fall on your subject. That way it's not spilling into the rest of the room and leaking onto the walls. Next, you could take an accent light, um, like my, I have these Aperture 60Xs, they're great, at, they're great hard source um, accent lights, and I'm going to get into hard source lights here later in the podcast, but you could take a light like that, and you could take what's called a gobo to create shadows, and I'll, I'll get to gobos later as well, and you could put a gobo in the spotlight, shine it at the wall, and create interesting shadows on the boring wall that's in the background. So now you have a white wall in the background that now has interesting shadows on it. Then you could take another another hard source light like that 60X I, I mentioned, something that is, uh, again, some sort of a, a hard source accent light, and you could um, you put barn doors on it and use them to cut the light. So you put a light streak on a different part of the wall and maybe you put like a, an orange gel, which is a, a piece of um, a piece of material that's kind of plasticky that changes the color of your light. You could put an orange gel in there and make, or even blue, let's just change it to blue and put that in the, in, in, in the background and now you have this blue streak on the wall. So now you have interesting shadows and you have a, a random blue streak on the wall that might really help the background pop. Um, and then you could take like a tube light, put it on a light stand on a, um, on some sort of a boom arm and put it over your subject and point it down at the subject to create a, a nice rim light, which will um, basically uh, outline the back of the person with a nice soft light. And already with those four light sources, you've created interesting shadows, A lot, you've created a light streak, you've added a, a key light off to the front side of the person. Um, and then on top of all of that, you outlined the back of the person with a tube light uh, or rim light to give you interesting outline on the on the character's uh, shoulders and head. We've already painted the room 
a lot to change the way it looks. Um, and you could take it so much further than that. You could um, block out on any pre-existing windows so that only your lights are shining through the room. Um, and there's a million things that you could do, but with just those four lights I've already mentioned, we've already created a light streak. We've created shadows. We've lit up the person off to the front side. And on top of that, we've put a rim light behind them. Already, our white, boring room is painted and looks beautiful, and it's all because of lighting. And that's before we put props in there. That's before we do anything else. We've already painted the room. So think of your frame of your camera as the canvas, and think of your lights as the paintbrush. If you can keep that in mind, you'll understand the importance of lighting and why it is so much more than just simply adding light in a dark situation. Now, let's start going into the different type of lights and how you can use them so that you can have a better idea of what to purchase for your own lighting kit. If you go onto a website like B&H and you click on their lighting tab, you'll probably right away notice that there's a million different type of lights out there. Different brands, different shapes, different sizes. Where do you start? Most people typically start with LED panels but I wanna talk you through the different types of lights so that you can understand their strengths and weaknesses to better help you when you want to purchase lights. Let's start with LED panels. LED panels are basically a big panel that could be one foot by one foot, one foot by two foot, two foot by two foot. There's all different sizes, but it's basically a panel that has a whole bunch of small LED lights all in the panel, and it creates one big panel of light. This panel typically creates a soft light. Now let's switch gears real quick and talk about what a hard light is. A hard light would be, for example, a flashlight. Think about how you take a flashlight, you turn it on, and it creates a light beam. And let's say you, you shine that flashlight at a, a coffee cup you have sitting on a table in front of you. That hard light, if you shine it, like let's just say you put part of the light on the coffee, coffee cup and then part you know, against the back wall, um, you will notice that there will be a really harsh shadow that's being created because it's a hard light source. Hard lights create harsh or hard shadows. They also create natural beams of light. Now, you may not always see the beam. It depends on the circumstances, but the, create, but the point is, is that a hard light is like a, think of it like a flashlight, like a beam of light that creates hard shadows. Now, a LED panel is different than that. It's not all in one spot. For reference, a hard light an example of a hard light is often called a point source light. And what a point source light is, is it's like a flashlight. It means there's, means there's either a single bulb or a collection of bulbs or a collection of LED chips that are all in one center spot, all compacted together in one small spot to create one hard source of light, kind of like a flashlight. You know, not all flashlights have one bulb. Sometimes a flashlight could have multiple bulbs. However, it's all coming from one spot, and that is why it's called a point source light. And point source lights create hard shadows. They are hard lights. 
Now, LED panels are the opposite. They are spreading all those light bulbs or, or little LED chips all across a big surface area. And as such, an LED panel is naturally softer. So if you take an LED panel and you point it to a coffee cup, the same coffee cup you pointed the flashlight at, it's going to create softer shadows on the wall. That coffee cup is not going to have this big, huge coffee shadow, <laughs> coffee cup shadow. It's going to have a really soft shadow that you may not even notice, right? Because it's so soft. Another example of that flashlight is how many of you as a kid would take a flashlight and stick your hand in front of it and you notice, you know, how you can take and make different shapes on the wall in a room with your hand, right? Because it's a hard light source coming from a point source light. However, if you were to take a big LED panel and you stuck your hand in front of it and had it pointed at a wall, you won't see those types of shadows. Not unless the LED panel is smaller and you're shooting like an extreme amount of light out of it. But the point is, is that the shadows are typically going to be much softer than if it were coming from a hard point source light. That is a huge distinction or a huge difference between the two types of lights. A lot of people today, when they go to buy lights, they'll see an LED panel kit online and they'll just buy it, not really understanding what they're buying. But there is a big difference between what an LED panel is and what a hard light source is. Why would you want one or the other? Well, they're really used for different situations. However, if you're only going to buy either panels or point source lights, I actually recommend you go with point source lights. Here's why. You can take a point source light, a hard source of light that creates those, those harsh shadows I talked about. You could take a light like that and you can modify it to make it soft. Earlier I said what a modifier was. Modifiers are soft boxes, they're lanterns, they're um, china cubes, they're, uh, they are light domes. Those are all sources of modifiers that you put in front of your hard source light that softens it and makes it into a soft light, right? You can take modifiers and modify your hard source light into a soft light, but it is way harder and almost impossible to take an LED panel that's a soft light source and turn it into a hard light. So if you're only gonna own one or one style, you're better off getting a hard light because it can be a hard light or it can be modified to be a soft light. Whereas a soft light really is only probably always going to be a soft light source. And there are a lot of times where you want a hard light source. Let me give you some examples. Let's say you were shooting a commercial scene and let's say you wanted the scene to look like it was in the morning time and you wanted to replicate sunlight coming into the kitchen. And let's say that you were tasked with shooting this, um, but it might be in the middle of the day, or it could even be in the middle of the night. Either way, let's just say that you want to create kitchen, a kitchen scene with morning sun coming in. If you have a hard light source, a bright hard light source from a point source light, you can put that outside of the house, point it through the window in the kitchen, turn it on, and create a huge bright source of light that is coming into the kitchen. You can then take a gel, that material I talked about earlier that changes the color of the light. You could then take a gel, put it on that light, and let's just say the gel is kind of yellowish, orangish 
and color, and now you've created a hard morning light that looks like sunlight coming into the room. And then to further modify the light, you could take um, a haze machine that you plug in the wall that creates a haze, kind of like fog, but not as dense. And you could turn on that haze machine, shoot a little bit of haze in the room, and you might actually see the beam of light coming into the through the kitchen window. And it might actually look like sunlight coming in through the kitchen, a beam of sunlight coming in through the kitchen. In fact, if you have blinds, you'll even see some of the shadows from the blinds in that atmospheric haze that you created. So you just created a kitchen scene with beautiful gelled morning sunlight, and it could be 12 o'clock at night when you do it. A hard light source gives you the ability to do that. It could be in the middle of the day, and you could do that, so long as your point source light is bright enough. Now, not every point source light is bright enough to replicate the sun. It takes a pretty bright light to do that. However, there's a lot of point source lights available today that are plenty bright enough to simulate the sun in that example. Another example would be, let's say you want to you want to do a book light. A book light is often used by cinematographers such as Roger Deakins. A book light is where you have um, a big sheet of diffusion. It could be a scrim, which is a frame that might have a, a silk cloth in front of it. Or it could even be something as cheap as a shower curtain, uh, like a light whitish shower curtain you get from Walmart. That could literally be a piece of diffusion. And what you could do for a book light is you shine a hard source light into a reflector and then it bounces off the reflector into the big sheet of diffusion and now you have this ginormous panel of soft light. With a soft light source like an LED panel, you can't really do a book light because you might it might it's already a soft light to begin with, which is good if you want soft light in a smaller surface area, but if you want to create a book light which creates a gigantic organic surface area of soft light, you really need a hard light to bounce off the reflector, not a soft light. So a hard light is great for creating book lights because you can bounce a beam of light into a reflector and then have it bounce off to the reflector into the diffusion and then create a big, ginormous, soft, diffused panel of light that could be used to, to soften an entire, an entire room and create beautiful soft light in a room. Um, other reasons to have uh, hard light is to create interesting shadows. Earlier I talked about gobos and I said you could use a gobo in our in our uh, my description earlier to create uh, shadows on the wall. Well, let me explain to you what a gobo is. When you were a kid, you probably watched Batman and in Batman, you know they have this big ginormous spotlight that they shine into the sky and when they turn it on, a bat logo or bat symbol, Batman symbol, is in the middle of the light, and you see that in the light sky. That is a gobo, essentially. You can have gobos accessible today for a really cheap price. Gobos are just discs that have cutouts in them, like a bat logo, Batman logo, that create shadows in your in your hard light source. So for example, I have two lights by Aperture called 60Xs, and I have little spotlight modifiers that go in front of them. They have a gobo, a gobo slot, and so I can put gobos in there to create 
Batman type of light. Now, what in, what in the earth would you use that for in real life? Well, you could actually put a logo in there. You could go online and go to a website and literally have a gobo made with your logo in it, and you could shine your logo onto a wall, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Um, but what what is more common is that people will um, put gobos in their light that look like shadows like uh, from a tree or from window blinds. That's a really common one. Let's say you're filming a, that kitchen scene that I was talking about earlier, and let's say you want to have um, window blind shadows on the wall in the kitchen on the opposite wall from the sunlight. You could literally take a second light and put a gobo in and shine that gobo on the wall and make it look like there are blinds that the sun is shining through um, because now you have this you have these window blinds on the wall. You can only do that with a hard light source. You cannot do that with a soft light source very well. So there's a million different reasons why you want a hard light. I could get into so many more. You, if you want to see the beam of light, you're much better off having a soft or a hard light source and using some atmospheric haze to to create that source. You could use a hard light with barn doors and easily uh, shape the light. There's just so many things that you can do with a hard light that you cannot do with an LED panel that is a soft light. So can you use barn doors with the soft light? Yes. Can you use gobos? Technically, yes. Well, really, instead of gobos, you would use what are called cookies. But the point is, is you can do some of these things with a soft light source, but they're better done with a hard light source. So always keep this in mind. A hard light can always be softened, but it is much harder or almost impossible to make a soft light hard. That is the key. So if you're only going to own one style of light, you are far better off owning hard light sources or point source lights because those are going to give you way more options to paint your your image on set than if you just simply buy a bunch of LED panels. They might be good for having light on your interview subject, but they're going to be way more difficult to create interesting lighting with because of that. That is the difference between an LED panel and a point source light. Now, another popular type of light are uh, LED tubes or just tube lights. Tube lights um, are also soft sources of light, kind of like an LED panel. Because if you think about it, a tube, a tube light might be two foot or four foot or six foot long, and you have light spreading off, spreading between two foot or four foot or six foot of length. That is creating a soft light source. So tube lights are also soft sources of light, kind of like an LED panel. Now, why would you choose a tube light over an LED panel? Well, first off, they're very small, lightweight, and portable. You can bring two or three or four tube lights um, that are battery operated with rechargeable batteries and could bring them with you on virtually any shoot because they don't take up hardly any space. I mean, they're kind of long, but they're lightweight. They, you could stick them in your tripod case or whatever, so long as they're protected. And you could bring them with you um, virtually anywhere. And it's really easy to battery operate them. Most lights can be battery operated today with like V-mount batteries or with a generator, etc. But a tube light is just a small battery that you plug in the wall and you charge it internally. Some of them have even have replaceable batteries so you can have multiples and you can just bring them with you and just throw them in rooms and stuff to create soft light. Tube lights a lot of times today are also RGBW. Now you might see this online where you see the words daylight, 
bicolor, or RGBW. What do those mean? Well, daylight means that the light source is only going to be one, um, one color, which is going to be daylight balanced. Daylight is typically 5600 or 5500 Kelvin. Okay, so if you buy a light that is daylight only, it is going to be around that 5500, 5600 Kelvin mark. The only way to change the color of a daylight light is to throw a gel in front of it or to reflect it off of a reflector or bounce source that is a different color, like a, an unbleached muslin. You can shoot a hard light that's daylight only into an unbleached muslin, which is a reflector that um, is really warm, and the the bounce will look warm. So you can modify daylight, a daylight only light with gels or with reflectors or bounces. However, um, it, it takes a little bit of extra effort to change the color of light. A bicolor light um, is different. You can change the Kelvin or the color temperature of the light. You Typically, somewhere around 2700 to 6500 Kelvin. 2700 would be really warm, um, kind of like a tungsten light that you might have in a house. Um, and 6500 will be really cool, um, cooler even than daylight. So you typically with a bicolor light can change the temperature from warm to cool um, and have a nice wide range. Lastly is RGBW. That stands for red, green, blue, white. An RGBW light typically can be bicolor. It can be cool and it can be warm and it can be daylight or white. But an RGBW light can also be red, green, or blue, and any typically anything in between. So RGBW lights are really popular today because you can change basically the light source and make it any color you want. Tube lights are starting to almost all be RGBW. Not all of them are. Like I have a, a tube light I'm getting ready to sell by Westcott. It's called the Westcott Ice Light 2. It is daylight only. But most tube lights that are coming out today, like my SGC2 lights I have, they are RGBW, so you can change the color of them. It's more common to find RGB-colored tube lights than it is a RGB-colored um, LED panel or point source light. Uh, LED panels are starting to become RGBW, like if you look at uh, the Nova series by Aperture, those are RGBW lights. Um, but there's not as many RGBW panel lights or um, LED panels as there are uh, tube lights. And there certainly are, aren't anywhere near the amount of hard source lights that are RGBW. And here's why. Because you might wonder, why wouldn't all lights be RGBW? Wouldn't it make sense to have any color that you want? And, and, and to a degree, yes, it would be great if all lights were RGBW. But there's a reason why they're not. Um, when you have a daylight-only light, like... Uh, like a uh, Aperture 600D, right? That's I have two Aperture 600Ds. I love them. They're super freaking bright. To put into perspective how bright my 600Ds are, um, one way to measure the brightness of a light is by Lux. Lux is a light meter uh, reading that allows you to quantify the brightness of light. To put into perspective how bright my 600D lights are, um, if you are standing on the ground today, outside your house during the middle of the day, the sunlight would be rated at about 120,000 lux. That's how bright it would be 
from our perspective on Earth. Now, the closer you get to the sun, the more that changes. But for all intents and purposes, if you walk outside your house when it's daylight outside, the sunlight is going to be around 120,000 lux. It's pretty bright. My Aperture 600Ds, when you put the Fresnel on front of them, which is a, a basically, it is a, um, it's kind of like a, a Fresnel is kind of like a, uh, kind of like a lens. It's a piece of glass that you put in front of a light that makes it even brighter. It, inten it intensifies the light even more. If you take my Aperture 600Ds and you put a Fresnel in front of them, they are rated at 224,000 lux. 224,000. That is almost twice that of the sun, which is 120,000. So that is how freaking bright those Aperture 600Ds are with Fresnels. So I love that because it allows me to compete with the sun, which we'll get to in a minute, or replicate the sun like in that kitchen scenario I described earlier. The thing about that is, though, is the Aperture 600D, D stands for daylight, is a daylight-only light source. Part of why it's able to stay so bright is because it is only having to have one color of light that takes up the amount of surface area that is required to create that amount, to create that light. If you take an Aperture 600X, which is the same exact size and draws the same amount of power as an Aperture 600D. If you take an Aperture 600X and you read the, the, the light measurement, it's almost 40% less bright than the Aperture 600D. Why is that? They're both around the same size. They both draw the same amount of power, roughly 600 watts. That's what the 600 stands for. So if they're both 600 watt lights that are about the same size, that, then why is it that the Aperture 600X is 40% darker than the Aperture 600D? It's because the Aperture 600X is a bicolored light, and in order to be bicolor, it has to have some light bulbs or some LED bulbs that are daylight, some that are warmer, and some that are cooler in order to achieve the bicolor look. Well, if you think about it, the 600D and the 600X the light source, the amount of LED chips is the exact same between the two. It's just that the 600D, all of the lights are one color. So when you turn it on, all of the lights are on at one time. A bicolor light, not all the lights could be on at one time. Only certain colors can. So if you want to have your light set to 3200 Kelvin, only the orangish colored lights can be on. If you want to set it at 6500 Kelvin, only the bluish colored light bulbs can be on or LED chips bulbs can be on. If you want it to be daylight, only the white ones can be on. And if they both are taking up the same amount of surface area, then that means that you have fewer bulbs on at one time as compared to the daylight only, which all the bulbs can be on at one time because all of them are the same color. Hopefully that makes sense. As such, a daylight light is always going to be bright, brighter than a bicolor light of the same of the same wattage and the same surface area because a daylight a daylight light only has to have one color and all the lights can be on at once. That is why daylight lights are brighter than bicolor. Because you might think, why not buy bicolor and why not buy RGBW over daylight? Daylight seems kind of like an old school thing, but it's because daylight lights are brighter. Now, RGBW lights tend to be even less bright 
than bicolor because they not only have to have the bulbs to be bicolor, but they also have to have the bulbs to be red, green, and blue. So in order for them to have all of those different colors of light in one surface in the same surface area as a daylight only light or a bicolor light, it naturally cannot be as bright. So if you're looking for the brightest light in real world application, if you're wanting to know how to pick a light today, if you're looking for the brightest that you can possibly get your hands on, go daylight only. If you want a light that is um, still adequately bright, but that can change the Kelvin enough to be uh, a little warmer or a little cooler, which covers most bases, then go with bicolor, but just understand it's not going to be quite as bright as daylight. And then if you want uh, lights that can be basically any color for creative purposes, like a music video or, or whatever else that you come up with, then you will want to RGBW light, but just know that an RGBW light is not going to be as bright as a bicolor light, nor is it going to be as bright as a daylight color light. So that's the difference and why you would choose one over the other. So if you're looking for the brightest, go with daylight. If you still want it to be somewhat bright, but you want to you want to be able to control the um, control the the color temperature for normal temperature ranges of tungsten to cool, go with go with bicolor. And if you want any color under the sun go with RGBW, just know it's not, it's going to be the dimmest of the three. Now, all that being said, I can hear people today screaming at this podcast saying, oh yeah, but there's a lot of really bright bicolor and really bright RGBW lights out there. And there certainly are. The Aperture 600X may be a bicolor light that's not as bright as the 600D, but it is way, way brighter than Aperture's 300D Mark II, which is a daylight only light. So just because one light is daylight and another is bicolor doesn't mean the daylight is always brighter than the bicolor. It just means that a, if you're shopping within a series of lights like Aperture 600s, Aperture 300s, Forza 500s, Nan lights, whatever the brand is, two lights of the same of the same series, the daylight will be brighter than the other. So it doesn't mean that all bicolor lights are not bright, and it doesn't mean that all day, daylight color lights are are brighter than, than bi, bicolor. It depends on the series. However, that's just something to pay attention to. Small Rig just came out with their first series of lights. They have a D for daylight and a B for bicolor, and the daylight is brighter than the bicolor. But I'm sure if they come out with a new version of lights that are a step up above it, the bicolor will probably be brighter than the daylight from the series that's underneath it. So that's kind of how it works. Hopefully that clears up a little bit of all of that. So you can buy really bright bicolor lights, and you can even buy really bright RGBW lights. Um, Aperture's Nova 600 is freaking bright, man. It is a really bright light, and it is an RGBW light. So there are really bright and powerful, powerful RGBW lights out there, but they are also expensive. That light, the Nova 600, is bright and it is RGBW and it is also over $3,000. So you got to kind of weigh all your options there because that's kind of how all of that works. Now, now that we've covered RGB um, versus bicolor versus daylight and we've covered hard source versus soft source uh, and tube lights, um, I'll, I'll give you some scenarios of when you might want each. If you are shopping just to get a set of lights, 
and it's your first set of lights, you're not sure what to get, I suggest getting some sort of a hard source light. There are some options out there by Godox, there's options out there by Nanlite, Small Rig has some, Aperture has um, their series, they have the uh, Amaran series, which is uh, their more affordable series, and then they have their standard lights. All of those are great brands to look at, but my suggestion is to go with some sort of a hard source light. And the reason why is because, I, as I stated earlier, you can modify and soften a hard source light, but then also have a hard source light when you want to have a hard source light. So I suggest if you're just looking to get your first handful of lights or your first few lights, go get some hard lights and buy the brightest ones that you can afford. The reason is, is the brighter lights you have, the more you can do. Let me give you some examples. So why would you need a really bright light? Well, let's start off with a typical interview situation. I cannot tell you how many times in my career I have shot interviews or been hired to shoot interviews and I show up to the location because maybe it's a doctor or a lawyer or um, some sort of a person that's in an insurance agency or whatever, you know, these are real world jobs and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm showing up to, to shoot some B-roll and whatnot, but I'm also there to get interviews and, and maybe they want to do the interviews at their, their offices or their medical practice or whatever. And I will show up and I'll scout the building out and, you know, there'll be a lot of small echoey rooms with a ton of reverb that I, I can't set up in because it'll ruin the audio. And so time and time again, the biggest room that I have available that gives me the most space that I can set up and create depth and be able to, you know, not have the subject against the wall. And that probably has the less reflection, the least amount of reflections in the room. So your audio doesn't sound echoey. Those rooms, the biggest room is almost always going to have some ridiculous windows. <laughs> and a lot of times I have to put the windows behind the person and I hate it. I don't like it, but in the real world, we are typically not working in studios all the time. We might be renting out studios. I have a project coming up. We're renting out a studio for and just rented out a studio a few weeks ago for a different project. However, how many times have you been hired to go shoot a project where you show up and you're, you're having to work with what's there? And so in the real world, a lot of times, a lot of buildings like that have windows that you might have to have in the background of your shot. Now, you can darken those windows by taking a squeegee and these... Uh, Basically, they're like gels that you can put on the window to make them darker, but that takes a lot of time. And on top of that, you have to you have to have those with you. And it could be a pain in the butt. And if they bubble or have streaks or anything, then that's going to be in your shot. So you, I prefer not to do that. I don't really like going that route. Another route to darken the window is to have uh, a scrim. Remember earlier I said a scrim is a frame that you put dif uh, diffusion on. You could have a scrim and instead of diffusion like a, like, a, like a silk or something, instead you could put a net and the net could be like a one-stop or two-stop net and you will put that over the window essentially and it will cut the brightness of the window down and it works great and you won't see the net so long as that's in your background and you have a shallower depth of field. However, you also have to bring in the scrims and you have to set all that up. Plus, if you are going to see the background at all, 
then it could not work out. So what is the best way? What is the best way to compete with a window? Because if you can't compete with a window, what are you going to do, right? You can't, you can't expose for the window and have your subject be dark and you can't, you can't do that. And you, and you don't want to expose for your subject and have your window be blown out in the background. Cause that'll look kind of nasty. And I said earlier that the squeegee thing is a pain in the butt and could have streaks and your net could be in the shot if it's not the perfect scenario. So what do you do? Well, if you have a really freaking bright key light or maybe even two really bright key lights, you can bring the exposure of the entire room up so much that you can stop your camera's camera down, expose your camera darker for the room, and now the outside will be darker as well. So think about it. When you are in a room and the windows behind you are really bright, you want to even out the entire exposure in the room so that it's more even with the outside light so everything has a pretty even exposure. That way the outside's not blown out but your interview subject is not too dark. The best best way to do that is to have really bright lights so that you can bring the exposure of the room up. Well, it takes a really bright light to do that. Even if you have a hard source light without a modifier on that looks really bright, when you put a modifier on like a lantern or a light dome or a soft box, or even if you shoot into a scrim with a super silk, or even if you're going the El Cheapo route and you're shooting it into a, a, a shower curtain to soften the light, it's going to cut the light down and make it dimmer. Anytime you soften a light, it makes it dimmer. So the only way to have a soft light that's still bright enough to compete with a room is to have the brightest lights that you can afford to buy. You always, always, always can dim a light down, whether it's with a dimmer or whether it's adding diffusion or whatever, you can take a bright light and you can dim it, but you can't take a dim light that isn't bright to begin with and somehow make it brighter. You can add reflectors and stuff to, I guess, technically make it brighter, but the point is is that it takes a really bright light to fill up a room in a situation like that, and it's way easier to dim down a bright light than it is to brighten a dark light. So I suggest starting off with point source lights that are going to give you uh, the ability to shape your light, to create shadows, to add gobos or cookies so you can create interesting shadows um, that gives you the ability to, um, to create light beams or create fake sunlight, stuff like that. But then that you can also soften and use as a key light in a, in a situation where you might be filming with windows in the background. That is a great, great example of why you want the brightest lights you can buy. It's a simple situation, filming an interview with it with windows in the background. But I have been in that situation time and time and time and time again. I have a shoot coming up. I'm shooting 30 videos for a client and all of them are having floor to ceiling windows in the background. The only way to fix that is to have really, really bright soft lights in the room in front of the subjects to bring up the exposure in the room. Otherwise, I'm gonna have to blow out the windows, which looks ugly and cheap. So you want the brightest lights that you can buy just for that alone. And if you have not ran into that situation yet, you will, and you'll run into it a bunch. Now, the other reason why you want the brightest light you can buy is for that kitchen scenario I said earlier. You may not be filming in a kitchen, but 
it is awesome to have a light that is bright enough that you can fake sunlight. A dimmer light will not pull this off. A bright light that shoots really bright beam hard light that you can put outside a house and beam through a window will give you a lot of creative options. You could shoot an entire commercial at three in the morning if you have the ability to shine light into a house. That is very common. When you watch TV shows, when you watch movies, when you watch films and doc projects and and people are in a house, whether it's a living room or a kitchen or maybe it's even a, a corporate building and the exposure is really nice and consistent in the house or in the room or wherever they are, a lot of times that is not natural light you're seeing. It's light that's being shined into the house or into the building. Having really bright lights opens up that door for you. Not even for shooting at three in the morning, but it could be three in the afternoon, but maybe you just need to pump a lot of light into a room to simulate daylight. That is a great, great place. You see this in every show and every movie you watch. You see tons and tons of shots inside where it looks like it's daylight in the room and lights are helping them creatively achieve that look. So getting the brightest lights you can help with that. Another reason is, what if you're shooting an interview outside? right? The classic way to shoot an interview outside, if it's like two in the afternoon or, or five o'clock in the evening or whatever, is to have the light shining either directly on the person or maybe off to the side. But what if you want, what if you are like in a really pretty area and you want to have the sun behind the person? What do you do in that situation? How can you how can you expose for the person if you want the sun to be behind them and backlight them? Well, you could take a reflector or a bounce board and shine the sunlight back into the person's face. That is one way to do it. The other way to do it is to have a really bright light. And if you have a really bright light or a couple of really bright lights that you can shine on the person, you could literally compete with the sun outside and have light that's shining on the person in front of them and have the sun shining behind them and be able to have an even exposure where you can see the sun and see the clouds, but yet still see a nice bright person's face. And you can still, like I said, you can still use things like reflectors or bounce boards to help you pull that off, but having bright lights is another great way to do it. Or using a bright light in combination with the bounce board or um, a reflector is a great way to do it. There's so many reasons to have bright lights sources. Um, you, maybe maybe you just want to light a, an evening situation up outside and you want to simulate moonlight. Maybe you're filming a gun commercial and or maybe it's a hunting commercial or, or maybe it's a gun commercial that you want to make it look like some guys are going hunting and, and you're, you're shooting a really cool scenario where a grandpa is handing his old Henry rifle down to his grandson and they hop out of their truck. They're getting ready to go deer hunting. The grandson's taking, uh, the grandson, the grandfather's taking the grandson on his very first deer hunt. Um, but maybe you want to show them, uh, loading up and it's like, I don't know, four in the morning and you're wanting to simulate that they're, you know, getting ready to go out to the blind. Well, you could take a really bright light, put a blue gel in front of it to make it look kind of like moonlight and then shine that light down at the truck or whatever as they pull their Henry rifle out for this Henry rifle commercial and make it look like it's being lit by the moonlight. There's so many reasons to have a bright light. So the brightest lights you can afford and going with hard point source lights are my suggestion for starting out. 
Now, does that mean do not own LED panels? Certainly not. I have LED panels. I have two Westcott one foot by one foot bicolor flex panels, and I love them because there's so many creative things I can do with them. These flex panels I own are so thin that I can tape them inside a car. I can shape them and bend them or turn them into a circle. I can... Um, I could take those soft LED panels and mount them above someone on a boom arm really easily. Like there's a million reasons why um, you can use a soft panel. So I'm not telling you not to own soft panels, but I'm just saying if you want to have panel lights, get them second. Then I would also look at tube lights. Tube lights are great to have. I've got four tube lights from SGC, which is the only company that makes tube lights that work with Aperture's Citus Link app. And these tube lights are great. I have two four-footers and two two-footers, and they're a nice soft light source that I can, they're RGBWs, so they, they give me a lot of different colors, so I can use them for creative purposes. I could, you know, I could put them in the background and shine them up at the wall and have a blue or red or green light bouncing on the wall that looks real pretty, you know, um, or I could... Uh, Let's just say I was filming a bar commercial. I could take one and make it blue and make take another one and make it red and shine it as hair lights on the person behind behind the person as hair lights um, and make it look like, uh, you know, neon lights reflecting on the person's hair. There's so many creative things you could do with them. They're also great just to have for com run and gun commercial shoots. I like to take my tube lights. Let's say I'm I, I'm shooting like a uh, in a machine shop or, or like a. Uh, a, a place where they're working on car parts, I can take the tube lights and just walk around the machine shop and move them around and set them down and uh, on little kickstands and can get shots um, that have light in it just by moving those you know, tube lights around with me. They're great, they're portable, they're lightweight, they're battery powered, and they can be dialed into any color. So I think having tube lights also opens up a lot of creative possibilities. Tube lights also look good in shots. You'll see a lot of uh, YouTubers or a lot of... Um, music videos where you might see tube lights in the background and it's just they're standing vertically on a small kickstand and they look great. Um, tube lights are great for being accent lights and that's what an accent light uh, can be is an, ac an accent light is any light that you have like in the background or something that that adds a, a little bit of flavor to the shot. You might see the light if you see it that's called a practical if you don't see the light, then it's just an accent light. Practicals are great to have, and uh, light tubes can be a practical that you actually see in the shot. Um, so I think having tubes is also a good thing. Tube lights is also a good thing to have in your kit. Um, they just open up a lot of possibilities, and they're also easy to boom. Um, when you want to run a light on a boom arm over someone, like for a hair light or a rim light, you have to have a really strong light stand or C-stand, and uh, really a, a light stand, a heavy-duty light stand, more than a C-stand actually, um, with sandbags and a really heavy-duty boom arm to be able to hold a big light up on uh, on a boom, and and it takes a serious amount of work to do that. Whereas you could take a tube light, which doesn't weigh a whole lot, and you could boom that over someone uh, with just a simple C stand, a sandbag, and a lightweight boom. So they're great for booming as well. So I think that having tube lights are great. I think having practicals are great. Um, tube lights, I said, could be practicals, but other examples would be uh, like Aperture, for instance, has the B7C lights, which look like light bulbs. They're great because you can take a light like a lamp, well, maybe you're filming a, a, a scene inside a house and you have a couple lamps in the, in the shot. How many times have you, been, have you been on a shoot where the lamps 
don't have matching lights. Well, you could take their bulbs out of the out of the lamp for for your client, and you could put your own bulbs in these B7C lights, and now you have uh, RGBW light bulbs that screw into a lamp that are controlled through an app that allow you to set them to tungsten or uh, maybe make them cool or maybe you want to do something creative and interesting and make them like blue or red or something for some kind of creepy video you're shooting. The, the point is, is having those little bulbs are really create, uh, really great for creative um, shots, whether you want to put them in a lamp or maybe you want to take like eight of them and and run them on a string of lights and have them hanging in the background like Christmas decorations. I mean, there's so many things you could do with those as practicals. You might also see lights like uh, the Falcon Eyes F7 or Aperture's MC lights that are magnetic, that you, um, they're like small LED lights that you might stick in the background onto things that you might see in a shot. Those are great for practicals. There's a lot of different reasons to have practicals. So if you're wanting to build a kit today, I suggest by starting out with getting two or three point source lights, getting the brightest lights you can afford. If you're working in an environment like corporate, shooting a lot of corporate videos and things like that, where um, where you might have lights in a room that you can't control and maybe you want to match your lights to the room light, then I suggest starting off by getting a, maybe one or two point source lights that are bicolor so you can control the color and maybe getting one key light that's really bright and go with daylight only. Um, that way you have one really, really bright daylight light as your key light and maybe you have one or two smaller point source lights that are still bright but maybe they're bicolor, not quite as bright but still bright enough. That would be great a great way to start. So you could get like one really bright daylight and light and maybe one or two small bicolor uh, color uh, lights going all um, point source would be a great way to start you could then get maybe one or two uh, tube lights to have just for run and gun shoots when you want to throw light into a room or maybe to use as hair lights or rim lights or things like that for interviews um, I would I would totally recommend they're cheap enough get you a couple RGBW tube lights um, that are battery powered that also can be plugged into the wall and use those for for interview type stuff but you can also use them for creative things when you just want to have interesting uh, RGBW lights in in your shots um, and then from there get some practicals. I, I would look at getting some small magnetic type practical lights, maybe get a couple of uh, like the apertures B7C's light B7C lights that you can screw in lamps and stuff. Those are super handy. They're not expensive. You could buy uh, a B7C on Amazon if you're a Prime member for $63 right now. So you could buy two of those for like $130. Bucks. Um, great to have in your kit. You could buy a couple MCs for $180. Bucks. So you could have two MCs and two of the little B7C light bulbs. That's four practicals for like 300 400 bucks. Great to have in your kit. Um, so get, get yourself some hard lights, get yourself a few practical lights, maybe a couple tube lights. And then if you ever down the road want to expand your kit any even further, then that's when you can start looking at some of the LED panels. Um, so they're, they're great lights to have. Every light I mentioned is great to have. I have panels, I have tubes, I have hard source lights, I have practicals. I have a wide variety of lights and I use all of them for all different kinds of projects. So I think it's great to have an assortment, but start with hard lights because you can shape them, you can create hard shadows or interesting shadows, and you can always soften them to make them soft. Having hard lights is definitely way, the way to go to start. And um, I recommend looking at 
looking at all the brands out there and evaluating um, the brightness per the price. You also want to look at the um, what the scores of the lights are because um, there is such a thing as bad light, meaning lights are not very color accurate. You're going to want to have the most uh, color accurate lights that you can find. The reason is is that uh, if a light says 5600, you want it to be 5600 or close to it. And you don't want it to lean green or lean magenta because if it does, then during your, um, like let's say you are shooting an interview, um, you don't want your light to have a, a little bit of a green tint to it that shows on your person's skin because then you might go home and you might be editing your project and you notice that your person's skin looks kind of green. And you might be like, man, that's weird. You know, I, I had my light set to 5600. I did a custom white balance. Why does their skin look green? Well, it's because your light, you know, if you have a cheap light that has a, a poor score, then it's going to be shining a greenish or maybe magenta or something like that. Um, light on their skin, which will reflect into the camera and actually change the color of their skin tones. And you certainly do not want to have that. So how do you know what, like what, what to look for in terms of scores? Um, a good example of a score would be to click on the light, go to the specs. And what you're looking for is CRI and TCLI. You want to see what the CRI score and TLCI score is. Almost any reputable brand of lights today will have their CRI and TCLI scores available um, on the listing for the light. So when you're reading about the light, you should see the scores. You want anything, if you if you are looking for a quality light, you want anything that's like 95 plus. Um, so like right here, I have pulled up Aperture's little MC lights, the little uh, practical magnetic lights. They have a CRI score of 96 plus and a TCLI score of 97 plus. That means they're really, really color accurate. So look for lights that have a CRI or a TCLI of 95 and above, or at least 90 and above, um, 95 and above if you can find it. Um, to make sure that the lights are color accurate. But most brands today are coming out with really color accurate lights, so it won't be hard for you to find uh, lights that have good CRI or TCLI scores. So just like if you're on B&H, just look at the specs and it will tell you what the CRI and TCLI scores are. Um, get anything that's 90 and above and preferably 95 and above for both of those scores. Um, and then it, if you're looking for brightness, if you're comparing different brands of lights and you want to look at the brightness, um, for example, hard source lights are going to be rated at lux. Earlier, I told you what uh, a lux reading was. I said the sun was 120,000 lux. I said my 600Ds with Fresnels are 224,000 lux. That's how you measure the bright. That's one of the ways that companies use to measure the brightness. So after looking at CRI and TCLI scores, you also want to look at the brightness uh, rating and Lux if it's available. Most lights should have it available. So like when you look at the new lights that came out by Small Rig, for instance, um, look at the Lux rating for those lights to give you an idea on how bright they are. Now you may not know what 65,000 lux means and that's okay. You don't have to know. All you have to do is memorize that number and then look at 
you know, another light within the price category that you're looking at and see what that number is. And if one is 35,000 lux and the other is 65,000 lux and they're both the same price and they're both color accurate, go with the lux that's rated at 65,000. It makes way more sense because it's almost twice as bright. Does that make sense? So just because you don't know, you don't have to know what what the lux means in terms of how bright it is, just use it as a measurement to compare the lights. It doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be rocket scientist. It, if you're looking at two lights that cost 500 bucks or 300, let's just say two lights that look that cost 350 bucks, just look at the score, the T, TCLI scores and the CRI scores and see how they compare. And then look at the lux to see how they compare. And if one is substantially brighter and more color accurate than the other light, then that's the light you want to get because it's brighter and more accurate. It's that simple. So all you have to do is use it as a comparison tool. Lux and CRI slash TCLI. That's how you're going to compare the lights. So buy the lights with the brightest lux rating that you can possibly afford that also have... Um, high color accuracy scores. If you do that, you'll be well off. So use that as your tool to help you uh, compare lights. It's also important to note what kind of modifiers a light can take. Um, all of my aperture point source lights are what are what is called Bowens mount compatible. Think of it like a lens mount. You have Sony E mount, you have Canon EF mount, you have Panasonic L mount. You know, all of those are different mounts that you use to pick out a lens that fits a camera, right? Well, there are similar mounting systems for point source lights. So like my Aperture 600Ds, 300Xs, six, well, yeah, and 60X, um, which, because it has an adapter, they all, they all take Bowen's mount um, modifiers. So when I'm shopping for modifiers like light domes or soft boxes or... Um, spotlights or Fresnels and things like that, I know to look for, for look for modifiers that are in Bowen's mount. So that's important. Um, Bowen's mount is really popular right now in point source lights. If you get something that is not Bowen's mount that has some kind of a weird mount to it, then you might have a hard time finding modifiers. So go with the, uh, a, a light that has a common mount like a Bowen's mount so that you can have a lot of soft boxes and light domes and lanterns and spotlights and Fresnels to choose from. Um, in terms of, uh, Looking at brands, there's a lot of good brands. There's Aperture. I keep saying Aperture because I, I love Aperture lights. I, I recently started getting them um, a few months ago, and I'm really glad I did. I think they're great. Um, they're really color accurate. They're really bright for the price, and they're built like a tank, man. These are lights that will last you most of your career, so they're good purchases. But they have a cheaper um they have like a cheaper uh, version of Aperture Lights called the Aperture Amaran. Um, and then they have other brands out there like Forza, Nanlite, Godox, Small Rig has now entered the game. So there's a lot of brands out there to look at. So just value the pricing versus the Lux rating versus the C uh, CRI and TCLI scores to help you determine which lights to go with. Try to go with a common mount like a Bowen's mount, and uh, you'll be good to go. And also pay attention to the build quality. Um, lights that have a cheaper build quality will have a hard time supporting a heavier, um, for instance, they might have a hard time supporting a heavier modifier, or they might short circuit on you, or maybe the light will go bad after a few years and will lose its color accuracy. Um, 
pay attention to all those things. I think having a well-built light matters because to me, when I bought my lights, I was making an, it was kind of like tripods. I was making an investment from the future. These are lights I plan to have for 20 years, right? Um, light, lights could short circuit or they could lose their color accuracy over time. But in theory, if you buy a really good light, it will last you pretty much your career. Same thing with a tripod, the same, uh, like a really good tripod, same thing with like uh, like an easy rig, you know, those are all investments that you'll have pretty much your whole career. So don't cheap out on lights, get lights that are going to last you a long time that you'll have for all the projects you do from here on out that are color accurate and that are really bright. So um, I do think that matters. Some lights are battery powered through V mounts and stuff like that. So you can look at options there. I personally don't battery power my point source lights. Um, I either plug them into mains power, like a wall power, or I run them off a generator, uh, a really quiet generator that runs off of uh, batteries. Or I will, if I do want a battery operated light, I use my LED panels or my tube lights because the batteries are super easy to work with. Um, but if you want, you can use V mounts and plug your lights in that way too. There's a bunch of options out there, but just try not to feel overwhelmed guys. That's the point of the podcast. I just wanted to shed some light. Haha. <laughs> that was so stupid. I'm sorry. I wanted to shed some light on light and, and just kind of tell you what the difference between a point source light slash hard light is versus a tube light versus an LED panel and uh, versus accent lights. And when you would use uh, all of them, I wanted to tell you what barn doors were, what gobos were, uh, scrims, what they were, what a book light is, and and kind of explain some different situations. Um, But try your very best not to feel overwhelmed. If you don't know what to do, go online, look at some lights that are in your price range that are point source lights that have good scores Uh, and just kind of compare pricing and look for the ones with the best reviews, get them, and just learn to use them. That's all there is to it. Um, If you have any questions, as always, go to Filming with Josh, post them there, and I'm happy to answer them. You can also message me privately, but I really like it when people post questions in their group um, because other people might have the same question, but, but, but... but might be too afraid to ask. And so if you post that in there um, and I answer or other people hop on and help answer the question for you, then um, it might get others who are kind of afraid to ask the opportunity to learn. Um, But try not to feel overwhelmed, guys. Lighting doesn't have to be overcomplicated. You just need to buy them and learn how to use them and understand that it's not about about taking a, a dark room or a dark situation and just giving it light. Um, like my old boss used to think, that's not how lighting works. Lighting is about painting your image. Um, any movie you watch that's that looks beautiful, that um, you might call quote, quote unquote, cinematic, <laughs> um, 90% of what they use to get them there is the lighting. It's more important than the camera. It's more important than the lens. Lighting is the most important aspect to a quality image. So, Buy some lights, learn to use them, and learn how to paint the frame of your camera, your aka your canvas, how to paint your canvas with light. Thanks, guys, for listening to today's podcast. I hope I covered everything that I needed to cover. There's obviously so much more out there about lighting that I just simply don't have time to get to today, but hopefully this gives you a great head start and an idea on what to look for. Do not call yourself a natural light shooter. That is a bad excuse. 
be honest with yourself. Lighting is important. You need to learn how to use it. They exist for a reason. So go buy yourself some lights, ask questions in the Filming with Josh group, and learn how to paint with light. Until next time. Until next Until next time. I cannot say that. And I'm going to leave this in the podcast so you guys can know that I am authentic. (laughs) Until next time, guys. See you later. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. Catch every episode by hitting subscribe today.